Welcome to episode 106 of the Swampflix podcast. My name is Brandon Leday. And I'm Cece Chapman. And we are recording in 7th Ward, New Orleans. Don't worry, we live together, so it's okay that we're recording in person. We've been in the same house for weeks. Four weeks now. And we're still doing the podcast version of the movie review website, Swampflix. We have used this time of extreme isolation to tackle a movie project that you've wanted to do for a while mm-hmm. that we keep putting off. Uh, we finally dove into the depths of Kenneth Anger's short film career, which we've piecemealed. Like we kind of watched like a short a day for a while as like a viewing yeah. project. The library where I work has a box set of the Kenneth Anger Magic Lantern Cycle, and there's roughly 10 films on it. And know, they range in length from like eight minutes to 30 minutes. And... I don't know, watching 10 short films isn't a lot, but it felt like a lot, kind of. They're very, like, dense. Yeah, so we just, we put it off for years and years, and I always wanted to watch them, and so it's obviously not on course reserves, because classes are now online, and everything we could possibly legally digitize, we did, and this wasn't being used, so I said, oh, I can take this home for an indefinite amount of time, now is the time to take it. And I will say, if you don't have access to this DVD through a library, most of these have been uploaded to YouTube from these like 80s VHS riffs. They're not as pretty as the DVD we watched, but you can watch most of these for free online right now, too. So I know just from being in the same space as you that most of the content you've been watching lately are these Kenneth Anger shorts. And we've started, I counted today, no fewer than six reality competition shows that are fashion related in the past month. So there's Next in Fashion, Making the Cut, Glow Up, then there's two drag shows. There's Drag Race, which is currently airing, and then Dragula, which we've started and stopped a few times. And then we ordered used DVD copies of the first season, first few seasons of Project Runway. And why is that, Brandon? I have a theory. Okay, well, first of all, I've tried to, like, care more about fashion over the past few years. It feels like an art form I'm kind of, like, under educated on Mm -hmm. also i just feel like it's really satisfying right now where it's like so hard to focus on anything to watch shows that are both easily watchable because reality tv is kind of trash so easy to watch there's no real thought that needs to go in for me as a person to prepare myself before sitting down to an episode yeah we're not frantically taking notes like we were during the kenneth anger movies Mm -mm. and then also uh it's just really satisfying to watch someone complete an art project that they focus on in a day I've been making masks for two days now, and so far I've cut out the base parts and some of the ties. That's all I've done in two days. So watching somebody actually complete something in a very short period of time is so satisfying. Very satisfying. And it's not just the simpleness of reality TV, it's the fact they actually do something with their time. Because I have practically unlimited time to do whatever I want, and I can't do anything. Oh yeah. I've been comparing it to that uh, Twilight Zone episode where the guy breaks his glasses when he's finally alone in the world with all his books. Yeah, it's that. I could be doing so many things right now. Well, one thing you're doing is podcasting. Oh, thank God. (laughs) And it's a movie podcast. So have you had any time to watch any other feature films since this started? Yes, I have. So one of the films that we watched together was a film that I had originally picked out when I was doing movie of the month with y'all and then I needed to bow out so I could focus on school and so this one we didn't get to do for movie of the month and you still hadn't seen it and it's kind of a comfort film for me. Uh, it is Ma Vie en Rose, My Life in Pink. 
is the translation. It is a French movie from the late 90s. And usually films from the late 90s that deal with LGBTQIA subjects aren't always great. They can be a little simplistic in their worldview. They can be just a little off politically. This one actually comes out pretty sweet. It's a story of this child in, you know, suburban 1990s France who, much to the consternation of their very uptight, you know, kind of conservative parents, is, you know, trans. They're just this sweet little girl and they just want to wear dresses and they really love this hyper surreal Barbie doll television star. And it doesn't focus too much on that storyline of being trapped in the wrong body. It... There's not a lot of self-hatred. All the bullying comes, you know, very clearly across as these adults are behaving irrationally. You know, it's well acted. The costumes are really fun and bizarre. Everything's very like Edward Scissorhands, kind of suburban, like pop. Yeah, it's very like curated, crisply, like confectionery style suburbia. So it's a little bit surreal and it feels surreal as you watch it. Um, But yeah, for a late 90s movie, it's... Not terrible, which I know, I know that sounds like a soft review, but it is sweet. It, it is a really sweet film, and the fantasy sequences are really fun. I thought it was absolutely gorgeous, and actually even more so than the like Tim Burton stuff. It reminded me a lot of Todd Haynes' films. Yeah, especially like, what's the one that has the bunch of shorts and the boy flies out the window? Yes, that's exactly the right one. Uh, it's called Poison. Yes. Movie. So, yeah, you have like two tracks, right? You have this like coming-of-age story about this like trans identity from this kid, And that feels, like, very rooted in, like, real-life cruelty. Mm -hmm. And it's mostly the cruelty of, like, enforcing gender roles in this kid who, like, doesn't need that. Yeah, no, she's fine. She's totally fine. She's like, look, I know that I was born this way, but someday that can change. So I'm just going to be patient. It's fine. You guys don't need to freak out about it. Like, I'm perfectly comfortable. And it's just everybody else being so uncomfortable. But I feel like we've seen that before in other movies like mm-hmm. there's other movies that cover that territory um even on this show recently we we recently discussed Celine Sciamma's um Tomboy which is a very similar story but it's shot in this like sort of docudrama style this what I really struck me was that you get that very like substantive theme but it's paired with that Todd Haynes like surrealism so that when the kid escapes into her like favorite Barbie style TV show, it becomes this like dollhouse miniature realm that she like goes into almost like Alice in Wonderland. And it becomes this like very like artificial, surreal, just beautiful. I want to say like exaggeration of like playing dress up. Like it Mm -hmm. feels like when little kids play dress up and escape into like their own imaginations, the movie replicates that on the screen like beautifully. Um, And I'm always going to be drawn more to that like fantasy side than I am to the docudrama. Yeah, I don't need the kitchen sink realism. Like, I'm fine without that. I just, I tread a line, you know, one, because, you know, I am not trans, so I don't, I can't speak, like, for how this film might affect somebody if they watch it. And, you know, some people might watch this and be like, oh, no, this film's super dated. It's just wrong. I just happened to always really like it when I was a kid. Like, I had this short period of time where I had access to IFC, and this was, like, one of the films I watched. And I was like, oh, my God, there's a world that I can escape to someday. A world where there's people who aren't like the ones I'm around right now. Oh, thank God. And so, you know, like, my soft spot I recognize might not necessarily be there for other people um but no I I do think the fantasy stuff is definitely what sets us apart from other like that whole 90s like we have to talk about serious subjects now 
for indie films. We're so real. We're not doing like action films. This is an Armageddon, which can be, I don't know, a bit overblown. Yeah, this feels like it's more like an echo of new queer cinema than it is that style. So yeah, no, I think I think it's a fun film. I think it's a sweet film. I really recommend it, you know. Yeah, it's really solid. Yeah, I like it a lot sol- too. Solid film. It held up a lot better than I thought it was going to. <laughs> I mean, there are traumatic things that happen in it and really dated ideas of gender in it, but they're all coming from very misguided people in this kid's life. Yeah, like pretty much all the like weird stuff that you're like, oh, that's not really how I think about that nowadays comes from people who are wrong and they very clearly set out like who is a villain and who is a hero and who is you know just wrong yeah anything else stand out that you've been able to watch uh well we recently watched something on netflix it was a brand new release called the platform uh it is a spanish science fiction film um about income inequality and politics it's really gross and fucked up so it's obviously not going to be everyone's cup of tea because it is very heavy on the gore it's set up a lot like a stage play like waiting for godot almost but like much much nastier or ed game even um where we have the conceit it's 100 percent conceit so there is a prison tower with hundreds and hundreds of floors and a platform of food descends the tower every day and you have like five minutes with this platform to get as much food off of it as you can and then it continues to go down and if you're on a lower floor, there might not be any food. So for the whole month that you're on that particular floor, you may starve to death or you may have to cannibalize your the person that you're in a cell with, etc. And it just follows this one guy who goes in super idealistic. He brings Don Quixote with him as his one object that he brings into the prison. And afterwards... Yeah, like other people brought a knife or like uh, a rope, like things that might help them in the scenario. This. Yeah, and he brings a book. And unlike a lot of the other people that he encounters, he chose to go to this place because in exchange he'd get a degree, which everyone else is like, you you wanted to be here? I was sentenced here for murdering someone. This is hell. Why would you choose to for something as stupid as a fucking degree? And it's like, I don't know. Why would any of us do any of this shit? Poverty, am I right? But yeah, it was very much written kind of like a college student's like think piece. Like it felt very much like a political paper turned into science fiction. Like if you were using science fiction to explore like political philosophy. And it's really gross, but the acting is really good. There's a lot of really memorable characters. There's a lot of really memorable scenes. I'd say it's darkly funny too. Yeah, it's kind of hilarious. Yeah, for a movie that's all political ideology and world building, it could be like a very self-serious like freshman philosophy course and it kind of is but it also like has a really wicked sense of humor too 100 percent. like they do make fun of you know the serious guy who brings don quixote and they make fun of all of his cellmates and just the absurd situation and yeah no it's it's funny it's weird very gory very violent but i don't know i really liked it and i think just i'm probably not the first person to say this because you know it's one of the only new releases that have come out in the past month so probably it's already been talked to death by people who would cover a violent horror film already but there's something about how they're locked in this cell space with just one other person and where they are in the tower affects their possibility for survival 
based on this sort of like arbitrary hierarchy, which, you know, I feel like has a lot of relevance to how we are all right now. Like people who are lower in the class system that we live in are going to be more affected by COVID-19 than people who are wealthy and can, you know, afford tests and doctors and can afford to work from home. And not, or who have remote summer houses or right. second properties they can flee to. So yeah, I just think it's very appropriate to the time we're living through, the very strange time we're living through right now. There is something about that violence uh, that is just so cathartic. It is so over the top and cartoonish. And I really love that in the movie. Like, it could be just this very self-serious political statement. And it, it is in a lot of ways, but I just like that it was having fun with the scenario and it was not, like, a miserable watch, even though it was a very gross watch. Yeah, fair. I think that's fair. Uh, they keep the pacing up good when nasty, violent things happen. If it's, you know, sexual violence or anything like that, you don't really see it. They push a lot of that off the screen really quickly. So anytime you do see violence, it's just kind of this almost cartoonishly gory stuff that is very, very, like, distance from the reality I currently live in where I'm never touching people or seeing people. So to, like, you know, like, watch somebody gleefully stab another person, it's like, oh, well, that's that's not my life right now. I'm fine. <laughs> I mean, that's not, but the sort of overall arcing frustration of the movie is that they want to achieve the solidarity across the prison to break out of this like cycle uh, that benefits very few people. And it's just impossible. Yeah. And it's hilarious how difficult it is like for the people who are trying to organize and trying to make this happen because it's not in any one person's best like it's in all of their best interest but like in that moment it might not be so like trying to organize that and it's like yeah that's kind of a situation that's very relatable very relatable so it's both relatable and not relatable yeah because i'm not in a actual prison futuristic tower prison with a food platform yeah (laughs) and knives but capitalism is the prison man oh shit! (laughs) it's definitely that kind of movie yeah (laughs) Well, I've been watching a lot more than you just because that's my hobby. <laughs> Whenever I can squeeze in the time for a movie, I do, even though it is very hard to focus right now. When I do have the time, I've been going through my shame pile of DVD purchases that I have not watched since I bought them. We have an entire, you know, approximately shoebox size box of just DVDs that we have not watched yet. So that's kind of a lot. <laughs> I'm going to talk about the two that I think most closely relate to Kenneth Anger. Okay. In a roundabout way. Okay. One was this film from 1953. It's called The Bigamist. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's directed by Ida Lupino, who I feel like is part of this like old Hollywood glamour that Kenneth Anger grew up idolizing and then sort of um, scandalizing in Hollywood Babylon. And just she has a very interesting career, Ida Lupino does, um, mm-hmm. in that old Hollywood system where she started off as this like... Barbara Stanwyck. Ingenue. Yeah, this like tough but beautiful, glamorous Hollywood actress. And then she somehow transitioned into being a director, like a female director in a time where so many doors were like locked in her face. And these are like big studio pictures. Mm-hmm. Her and her husband started this collective called The Filmmakers. Uh, and one of the ways she like leveraged herself to be able to be a director is because she made these like moralistic tales she would like use these like moral frames as an excuse to do whatever she wanted so like at the beginning of the hitchhiker which is like her most famous movie it's like this basically noir cat and mouse thriller 
it starts with these two men who are going out of town to cheat on their wives in Tijuana. And then they get like mixed up in this like crazy adventure where this hitchhiker takes them hostage. Um, and it's like, well, don't stray away from your wives while you're out of town. And this will never happen to you. <laughs> and the bigamist is kind of the same thing. It's this like morality tale about adultery, but the way she does it, it's like just so different than how you would expect that to be. Ed O'Brien is the, the bigamist. He has two wives. He's a traveling salesman. Uh, one wife he's been married to for eight years, and it's become kind of a marriage of convenience in this like business partnership. And then I think she's played by Jane Russell off the top of my head. And the uh, newer wife of eight months is played by Ida Lupino herself. Uh, and she's like this West Coast waitress, uh, and he has more of like a passionate like love affair, like burning, lustful relationship with her. And... The way the movie shakes out, it's almost like a noir mystery. You're like, why is this guy so touchy about people looking into his past? But it's right there in the poster. It's called The Bigamist. You know that eventually it'll be exposed that he has two wives. And it kind of swells into this courtroom drama where the thing that's really eating him up and the thing that's really like tearing him down is not that he can't love these two women equally and that he, that he's like selling either of them short. It's that he is lying to them. <laughs> like, the thing that's really eating him up is that he is presenting a false version of himself to both women. It's kind of like the opposite of Le Benor, that Agnes Varda film. Mm-hmm. The point of the movie is not really that he's, like, taking advantage of either of these women. It's, it's almost like a pro, like, polyamory tale in a lot of ways. The movie has no doubt that he can equally love both women and maintain these two relationships. The only problem is the deception that... He has to maintain. Yeah. And it's such a weird angle for a 50s Hays Code drama. And Ida Lupino herself is just so fucking good in this like uh, role as the, uh, the younger woman. She's like the real standout in the film. And it's very wrapped up in just Hollywood glamour too. Like she drives around on a... Uh, you know, there's like bus tours of like Hollywood stars homes Yeah. and they go by like Barbara Stanwyck's house and they go by Edmund Gwen's house. But Edmund Gwen actually plays a uh, character in the movie. A weird. <laughs> uh, so I don't know. It's just like a very like interesting relic from Hollywood that probably shouldn't exist. Yeah. Uh, and wasn't there something else like really weird about that one's history? Oh, yeah. That's another like that's actually probably closer to what Kenneth Anger would be interested in. The filmmakers that was Ida Lupino and her husband, they had divorced, but the guy that she divorced was still a producer and a writer on the film, and he was freshly married to Jane Russell, her co-star in this. So, like, the bigamy in the movie is actually, like, behind the scenes as well. Like, her and Jane Russell are also actually in a relationship with someone, because she's still making movies and writing with this guy that Jane Russell is now married to. Just a really weird relic from old Hollywood. And if you like courtroom dramas and like sort of softer noirs from that era, it's not a hyper violent film, obviously. There's no, actually no violence at all. But it's shot like a noir. It's got that like mysterious like. The lighting. Intrigue and lighting and yeah. Light coming across the blinds. A woman with a hat. (laughs) Uh, I really liked it a lot. Um, The Hitchhiker is more of like a throat hold. Like it's like obviously intense. This one's more like just interesting. On a moral level, like reading its moral compass is very like tricky. The other movie I watched is only relatable to Kenneth Anger in that the director only made shorts for, throughout her entire career. Uh, her name was Sarah Jacobson. Uh, she declared herself the queen of the underground film. And I feel like shorts are like underground filmmaking. No one really wants to watch them outside of uh, film festivals, really. Yeah. They're no, hard to market. 
I never really want to sit down with a bowl of popcorn and just watch a series of shorts in my house, but I don't know. I'm not cool like the cool <laughs> film people, I guess. Her biggest one, I think, was I Was a Teenage Serial Killer. I actually haven't watched that one off the box set yet, but she did manage to make one feature film, and it's called Mary Jane's Not a Virgin Anymore. Great title. Great title. So this is a filmmaker from like the Riot Girl zine culture era of like 90s punk. Mary Jane's Not a Virgin Anymore is her riffing on like 50s Roger Corman like teen pictures those like Road to Ruin movies where like girls lose their virginity and like their whole life just goes to shit oh reefer madness oh no yeah that kind of like moralistic stuff but what she's doing is spoofing that Mm -hmm. and then turning it into genuinely like healthy sex education for punks like the punks in this movie have a terrible outright like misogynistic view of sex you know, like, teens just have terrible sex. Like, we're, yeah. t- we're taught the wrong lessons, and it takes us a long time to, like, undo, like, patriarchal expectations of what sex is supposed to be. A lot of that comes from Hollywood movies. Mm-hmm. So the movie's openly spoofing, like, the romantic version of sex and then showing the, like, grimy, uncomfortable version because we're all bad at it at first. And then from that starting point, the main character, after she loses her virginity in this, like, really awful unromantic way starts to learn that sex can be enjoyable with the right partners as long as they're not like total assholes and uh one of those partners includes herself like she learns that like masturbation is healthy she learns that like bisexuality exists like she just goes on this like sort of coming of age realization of that like sex can be fun and healthy and good it's just that we're all been taught the wrong things and i think that's very important in a like punk context because all youth counterculture like hippies, punks, uh, recently like leftists have been part of this, all have this like strain of like misogyny to them that seems really like off from their politics. Yeah. And it's like unexamined. Well, yeah, because we assume that if your politics are good, then like, oh, well, we don't have to push back on anything else you do. And it's like, well, the hippies were like super homophobic sometimes and very misogynistic. And, you know, we're like, yeah, wife swapping. We're totally cool with, like, sharing partners, but, like, oh, no, I'm not into gay stuff, though. But, oh, I'll sleep with your girlfriend, and your girlfriend can sleep with, you know, like, yeah, it was, like, a lot of bullshit, a lot of, like, territorial, a lot of, like, um, seeing, like, women as possessions and that kind of stuff. And you see it, yeah, in the punk DIY culture, there's a lot of fucked up misogyny and a lot of, like, you know, punks had, had to push back and, like, be like, no, that's not the culture we're trying to build. And so, yeah. Yeah, and, and to bring it back to the bigamist, I think that, like, Lebanon was like very smartly poking at that like free love idea as well yeah free love is really great but not for everyone yeah (laughs) mostly great for the guys involved in free love yeah it benefits the people already in power yeah yeah this movie i think pokes at that and it just works as like a hangout film because the characters are actually likable they just have terrible sex education and this movie's like course correcting them If you're interested in punk culture and you like short films, Agfa put together this beautiful restorative Blu-ray of all of Sarah Jacobson's movies. They all fit on one disc, unfortunately. Uh, She died very young. But also this movie, uh, Mary Jane's Not a Virgin Anymore, is available on those like 2B-type apps where there's like ads like every five minutes. (laughs) So if you don't want to invest, you want a little taste of it, you can watch this online. But the Agfa Blu-ray is beautiful. Cool. And um, we have plenty more movies to talk about. Yes. We have so many more shorts to talk about, <laughs> yeah. specifically. And uh, I hope you're into, like, a strange journey through, like, leather gay culture and, like, black magic, satanic rituals and... The occult. Yeah. 
maybe my terminology will be better by the time we're done. <laughs> maybe it'll be an education for me as well. And all that's coming up to you right, right now. now. I grew up in um, Beverly Hills. I went to Beverly Hills High School. And uh, my hobby was collecting gossip and stories and also newspaper clippings and magazine write-ups and so forth about Hollywood scandals and tragedies. I've always seen lots of Hollywood films and luckily I had a indulgent parents and I could go at least once or twice a week to see films. I would go every, usually every Saturday when I was growing up and I learned a lot about cutting and pacing and things by watching the serials. So usually for this segment, we do like a movie the minute and then relate it all to like a larger topic. But this whole episode is like a larger topic. We're all, we're mm-hmm. doing a bunch of films that all are part of a series called The Magic Lantern Cycle, as we said earlier. And it was a series of short films directed by Kenneth Anger. So I just kind of want to sort of sketch out here who is Kenneth Anger and what is The Magic Lantern Cycle. Mm-hmm. These are harder questions to answer than you would think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know Kenneth Anger mostly as the author of Hollywood Babylon. Same. I grew up reading Hollywood Babylon. It is a filthy, trashy, largely unsubstantiated book of rather nasty and salacious rumors of the golden age of Hollywood stars and starlets, published sometime in the 60s or 70s. Yeah, it's like way after that stuff was over, but it was obviously like... He grew up reading gossip mags from like the old Hollywood period. But it's not even the stuff they ever would have dared to print. None of this came from gossip mags. All of this came from like their friends of friends, that kind of stuff. Because it's like stuff about Rudolph Valentino's sex life or how people like got abortions and who committed suicide. He grew up in Beverly Hills, like Mm -hmm. around that stuff. Yeah, no, he definitely knew people who were involved in that scene. And he himself states that he was a child star during the Golden Age, which is also unsubstantiated and um, often disputed. And I would say that helped me fill in a gap in this conversation just because I was looking at when these movies came out. Mm -hmm. And there's this gap, I think, from 54 to 64, where Mm -hmm. there's like nothing, no films in the cycle. And it's like, what was he doing in that time? And I think he was working on Hollywood Babylon in that era. It was partially that and partially his mother passed away. Oh, okay. Um, He came back from France in the 50s uh, after he made Oda Artifice because his mother passed. And so, yeah, he needed money after that. So he was like, I better write this book. So what we have is this guy who grew up as a movie nerd in Hollywood basically teaching himself as a film student just by going to the theater a lot as a kid. Yeah, and his grandmother was a costumer, so she made costumes for those studios. So he also had an in from her, and she was largely influential in his life. Uh, She doted on him, and he often lived with her when he wasn't getting along with his parents. He borrowed some money to make a movie, and I think he used like family vacation 60-millimeter footage that was going to expire by the next time they were on vacation. And that was like the only time they took home movies. He's like, can I use this like film that we have left over to make a movie? And he sort of became like an art filmmaker that way. Still in his teens. Yeah. And through that happenstance, he became like the first openly gay filmmaker to make a dramatic film about queer topics in American filmmaking circles. And he got a lot of attention for it and basically launched into this like longer career on niche topics 
that included this like openly homoerotic content in a time where like that was basically illegal like it was an illegal act and then as he leveraged that added in more niche subjects like his interest in the occult which i believe started in high school as well yeah or even younger than that his grandmother gave him the books from the wizard of oz series and those books include a lot of Rosencrucianism themes throughout. Uh, so that kind of got him into the occult. And then he started reading the works of Aleister Crowley and became an adherent of Aleister Crowley's religion, Thelema. And then he became friends with Anton LaVey at some point, too. So yeah. there's a little bit of satanic influence. Yeah, he's a little bit Church of Satan influence. But at the same time, his like true thing is Thelema. Right. Like he is still a you know proponent of Thelema. And just sort of by watching these, I think what attracted him to the Anton LaVey stuff is just the ritual of it. Mm-hmm. It's so theatrical. I think what LaVey was doing was taking these like rituals and turning them into these like public stunts. Mm-hmm. But it seems more like anger was like a true believer in the stuff and like was trying to focus the energy and the magic of these rituals into his filmmaking. Uh, and something he talks about a lot. I've watched a couple interviews where he says like, I was trying to get famous and become like a mainstream filmmaker and like using magic and magic rituals to like focus my energy on that, on like manifesting that. And I, I eventually just figured I couldn't have it all. I could create these like magic feelings and energy in my work, but I could never make that amount to a real life success. A lot of the films from like the more occult period of his stuff definitely feels like it's a spell. The film itself is the spell. Uh, and he's also capturing people performing ritual and spell on tape, but it feels almost like the work itself is the spell. Right. Which I think is kind of interesting. And that's very romantic to talk about. But after watching these and sort of reading their production histories, I find it a little less romantic now. <laughs> on one level, he's a very interesting person because mm-hmm. of all that. Yeah, no, like one of the films we're going to talk about, Fireworks, is the film that helped turn the Supreme Court and like strike down obscenity laws like it along with Berlinghetti's work and Ginsburg's case all that was part of the same 1950s milieu that helped strike down obscenity laws so like so important for censorship so important for expression also doing this cool stuff with the occult but I think that international attention though inflated his ego a little bit little bit (laughs) and when you read about the production history and all these like magic films it seems like he was just a bit of a drugged out mess at a certain point it was hard for him to complete projects because his mind was kind of scrambled by you know lsd and you know all the other fun party drugs people were doing at the time definitely we're going to talk more about like the individual films later but overall they feel a little shoehorned like as a series they're a bit messy they're incoherent And he never really has managed to ever make a full-length feature film. He's made a lot of shorts that are all fragments of larger feature films, but then nothing has ever quite come together for him. Despite the fact that he has, you know, at different points of his career, had, like, overwhelming support from his, like, peers. And, you know, other times he's had the opposite of that. And has managed to forge financially beneficial alliances with people like Frank Getty Jr., who of course, was a huge funder of the arts. And yet it never quite, never quite happened for him. I think that works for him in a couple like major ways. Like these short films look really dense and intricate because of that. Because they're basically scraps from these larger productions that never came together. Mm -hmm. But they make the films just look 
really extravagant in a certain way, especially the later in his career you get. Yeah, because if you take a feature length amount of footage and then you cut it just into a short film, you're taking only the very best moments. And they also just sort of build his legacy as this like, you know, mm-hmm. dark force in the outskirts of the film industry, this sort of outsider magic queer man who was forging his own way and like the system didn't like prop him up properly. But, you know, just reading up on it, I feel a little bit of just like, oh, wow, he actually squandered a few opportunities to do something even cooler than what he managed to pull off. Yeah, no, he definitely got to hang on to his, like, indie credits, like, the enfant terrible uh, forever, essentially. He's never had to give that up, which at some point, usually during your career, you have to give up that you're the bad boy of queer cinema or uh, occult cinema. And he's never had to give that up just because, yeah, he has often been surrounded by people who just let him do whatever he wants. He's never really had a forceful producer to say, no, Kenneth, we are going to shoot today. Do not do LSD today. We have a shoot to do. No, we're not going to Morocco this month. We need to finish the like editing we already have. Like He never really had that person long term. And he himself never seemed to have that sort of discipline. Yeah. So really what you have is someone who has made 40 short films total. That's like the number I saw. What I was confused by is what makes the Magic Lantern cycle. And finding information on how these films were selected is a lot harder than you would think. Yeah, when we first went into it, we thought that it would just be films that reference the occult, have you know either direct occult ties, like the filming of a ritual, or have like little nods, little Easter eggs, which he often does throughout his films. There'll be perfume bottles used throughout productions or the moon or other symbology kind of included. And that didn't really pan out once we watched them. Yeah, I would say, you know, there's a little bit of mixture of dream logic and like magic feeling in the air in like most of these. And it's mixed with his, like, purient interest in, like, muscle men mm-hmm. and, like, phallic imagery. Yeah, very Tom of Fenland era sexuality and portrayal of gender. But overall, I would say, like, the unifying theme of these movies is they all have some sort of ritual to them. Even the ones where you don't even think, like, oh, that's a ritual. If it's, like, someone just selecting a dress to wear for the day, that'll come up later. You know, like... The more you see that in the context of the cycle, that's what sort of stuck out to me is like the only unifying theme is like the power of these like personal rituals and like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, definitely. Magic can be that very big campy spectacle like LeVay or it can be a person polishing a car lovingly. Yeah. People forget that magic is also very mundane. If you are going to a job interview and you want to do well, you polish a specific pair of shoes or you do like the little superstitions. And I think that does come up in some of his films that aren't particularly magic. It's just that kind of feeling of the personal ritual. And I at least was glad to see that this wasn't like an arbitrary selection of movies in that, you know, it's not like a DVD distributor was like, okay, this is the Magic Lantern series. He actually did group them himself Initially, Mm -hmm. Uh, there's a screening in 1966 in New York where he came up almost with a ritual. He had this like postcard playbook of like everything that was going to be screened that night. You know, underground art snobs in New York were watching this. And part of it was just a list of films with some screen grabs. And then part of it was these like magic Aleister Crowley inspired symbols. So the ritual of watching these movies uh, was almost like an invocation in itself. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he included in the program notes like, 
when you should drop acid to come up at the exact right time to experience the full magic power of the movies as well. Yeah, and definitely like a lot of the magical films from the first half of his career are part of that original cycle. But then it looks like, on our DVD set at least, it continues after that. There's more films that are now being included in the Magic Lantern cycle. And more so than even that, he's completely revamped a few of the movies, changed Mm -hmm. things around, added movies in, taken movies out, and he's still tinkering with that stuff now, it feels like. He's still alive. I feel like we're kind of talking about him like he's dead. Uh, But he's, he's always just continuously messed with his work. Yeah, like it's like the George Lucas effect. You know, he's always tinkering. And sometimes we don't get to keep the original cuts. He'll cut something out and then the film will be gone. Um, So we lose little bits and pieces. Then he adds stuff in. And yeah, he'll play with frame rates. He'll change soundtracks. And so as a result, some of the films we saw, we actually saw twice because of his tinkering, because we'd see one version that he put out in the 1950s or 60s. And then we'd see another version he put out in the 70s. One of the earlier films that we saw from him was from, I think he shot in the 40s. And the soundtrack of it, we were like, this is either this band is like, the earliest version of psychedelia that has ever existed and they're doing this music in the late 40s early 50s or he added in the music later and he looked it up and yes he he just switched yeah the it music used to be around. some opera yes verity yeah and then yeah he swapped it out we can at least say he initially grouped these movies as the magic lantern cycle mm-hmm. and we know where he got the name from yes uh, he combined two ideas which was the magic lantern itself do you want to describe what that is so a magic lantern was a popular pre-cinema form of entertainment it is a lantern where three of the sides are enclosed so light does not emit from them and then one side has a lens on it that you put glass plates in front of which would then project on the wall obviously that's just a static image it's not a lot to it but people would do magic lantern shows and those people were very often magicians uh stage magicians of some kind practical magicians and so they would do things like they'd have smoke in incense burners and they would do shadow puppets and other things along with the image to create an atmosphere to tell a story which is like the earliest cinema essentially yeah and what he does to distinguish that Magic Lantern from this series is he spells it with a, a K at the end. M-A-G-I-C-K. Yes. Uh, which that version of magic is an Aleister Crowley term from mm-hmm. the Thelematic religion. And that is supposed to distinguish real magic from magicians and like that kind of visual trickery you were just talking about. Mm-hmm. So this idea is like I'm using cinema to create real world magic yes. through the Aleister Crowley tradition. And that is his intent with this series. Um, And we can discuss each film, whether or not he's successful uh, (laughs) as we go along. Yeah, totally. Crowley sort of found a lot of validity in the nature religion of the ancient Egyptians. And his religion is basically a revival of the ancient Egyptian religion. He was like, at one time, known in England as the wickedest man in the world by the popular papers, because basically he brought sacrality or a sacred approach to sexuality, that there was a sexual energy that could be directed in uh, like a magical ceremony or even in making love to, to focus the energy. 
as we said, there are several different versions of the Magic Lantern cycle that have changed a lot over the years. Mm -hmm. If you look these up on YouTube, Kenneth Anger's like 80s distribution was this like VHS company called Mystic Video, which I'm pretty sure was just distributing his films. But the version we went with was this 2010 release from Fantoma. So we're just going to discuss the movies that are included on that DVD set as they popped up on it, which is more or less chronological. More or less. And the first one included on there is 1947's Fireworks. Uh, This was the film that kind of catapulted him to an international stage immediately. It was his first film. Like I said earlier, he was using like family 16 millimeter camera, like a home movies setup and teamed up with a bunch of art school students in San Francisco. A few of them happened to be sailors uh, as well. And they collaborated on this movie where a character played by Kenneth Anger himself is having this like wet nightmare about getting beaten up by a bunch of sailors. Like he's like cruising at the docks and, you know, hits on the wrong buff Navy man and a bunch of sailors beat him up and it seems like sexually assault him. That is a very concise premise When, like, the way the movie actually plays out, it's this layered dreams within dreams. He keeps waking up from this nightmare, and it's just another level of, like, artifice. Mm -hmm. And the movie's already loopy and disorienting in the way that his movies would only become more and more so over his career. Yeah, it's rife with symbology. Yeah, already there's, like, that uh, hand of fate candle that's, like, melting in the foreground. So he's already bringing some occult imagery into this. Mm -hmm. Very much so. There'll be an image of a sailor sort of holding his, like, lit body in this, like, way that's both erotic and tragic. Uh, and that'll be appear in a photograph. And then later, within one of the, like, inception layers of dreams, the actual image will happen. And you'll see the sailor holding him. The violence is eroticized. There's a lot of, like, waist-level shots of men buckling and unbuckling their pants. There's a scene where he's getting beaten and then this milky, like, semen-like liquid is poured on his face until he's like choking on it Uh, it's just milk it is so graphic the title fireworks becomes very literal at a certain point where in the fly of a sailor's pants there's this like phallic firecracker that's sticking out of the buttonhole and like like, a roman candle or something yeah and it it just ejaculates sparks everywhere and it is like an explicitly gay movie it's got this like kind of tom of finland hyper masculine uh, rough trade kind of like eroticism to it Mm -hmm. Um, And for 1947, when homosexuality was an illegal practice, uh, that was a big deal. And this movie became like a Supreme Court case uh, for First Amendment rights, which he eventually won after much fighting. And, you know, we'll talk about the opportunities that came to him after that catapulted him. I think this movie has a very clear narrative to it, a very clear purpose. And I was wowed by it immediately, like... I don't know if it was just from not knowing what to expect from him as a filmmaker, but this being like an opening firecracker shot into the the darkness of queer cinema at the time, which is non-existent. Like it, it was very impressive and memorable. Yeah. I mean, I would say a lot of the individual images from it are extremely memorable for me. You know, part, part of it was the film obviously was of poor quality and degraded before the restoration took place. So A lot of images are blown out. A lot of stuff's really scratching. You can't always see really what's going on uh, in a way that is not like artifice. It's not like Guy Madden who is purposely scratching his film. It's just that this film is damaged. Um, And so, you know, that's a little disappointing. Like they did a really great job restoring it, but it's still 
Never had the richness that it could have had probably because it was already shot on expired film stock. I didn't always, because it was such an inception layer of dreams within dreams and a lot of symbol uh, symbols were used, like a burning Christmas tree being fed sideways through an open doorway and then later shoved into a fireplace. Like I don't necessarily get all of it. So like for me, I was a little unsatisfied just because I didn't get it. But also that's just like me being like dumb and feeling dumber for well, not getting it. There's going to be a certain level of that. These are like intellectual movies to talk about where like it's provocative imagery where there's no right answer really, you know? Yeah. But I think this movie gets away with that um, maybe more so than some of the other ones even because it is a dream logic story. Yeah. So yeah, you put something weird in it and it's just, like, oh, well, you know, weird things happen in dreams. But I don't think it's completely loosey-goosey or anything. No, all of it has a meaning. That's what's frustrating because I don't think he was necessarily putting things in that just randomly. He didn't just like pick up a random thing and stick it in there. Like he thought about it. It made sense to him. The only way I can see the Christmas tree sort of fitting in with this is that it's this sort of like Norman Rockwell, like Americana image. I know like the Christmas tree has like been all over the world, but that like highly commercialized version of Christmas is very like consumer American culture. And they like literally burn it in the fireplace at the end. Uh, and there's something kind of blasphemous about that, even though it's not like an actual Christian symbol. Yeah, no, it's like anti like heteronormativity, like anti that nuclear family with the two and a half kids and picket fence and all that. Like I get that part. And there's something a little yeah. perverse about yeah. that. And there are other details that are a little obscure when he's hitting on the sailor at the dock and cruising. Um, the way he like, I mean, th- this is a silent film with no dialogue. We should mention all these I believe are silent. They're scored with music, but they're not like dialogue based. He offers to light the sailor's cigarette, which is like a classic cruising tactic that you'll hear, you know, gay men who were cruising at a time where you couldn't be out. Like they talk about that, like you offer to light a stranger's cigarette um, and the way they react to that advancement or like adjusting your belt buckle. And there's a lot of belt buckling fiddling in this. So that I think would be a symbol that would like speak directly to gay people at the time. Yeah, absolutely. But then you have, like, the rocket shooting out of the pants where an erect dick would be. And it's like, that would be missed by no yeah, one. that's not, yeah, you can't miss that. Or, like, there is a flash where you see an erect penis. And then it's like, oh, it's a wooden figurine. It's like, oh, yeah, no, it's symbology is obvious. It's a dick. The dick is the symbol. Or, like, there's a scene during the rough trade when he is being beaten to death by the semen. And <laughs> even that. <laughs> and you know, they rip his chest open and there's viscera everywhere and then instead of a beating heart, it's like a gas gauge. I couldn't tell what that was. I thought it might it might be a compass, like a sailor's yeah, compass. Yeah, or a sailor's compass, yeah. And compass. that shot is brutal in that like Unshan Andalu style where it's just like animal guts and they dig into it and then there's this mechanical piece on the inside. Mm. So classic like Bunuel surrealism there, but so yeah, it invites you to interpret things however you want to. But it still comes from this like Jean Genet or like Burroughs' novel Queer. Like it comes from a very certain crisply defined era of like gay culture. Mm-hmm. And I loved seeing that combined with like the surrealist dream logic stuff. And I'm going to be honest up front. Like this is like probably my favorite movie in this entire set. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's fair. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know that it's necessarily the most representative of, you know, where his career would go even it does feel like an outlier within the set. Yeah, I for sure. Say. Even despite the like minor occult symbology, it's still somewhat outside of what he usually does. 
And if we're going to talk about ritual as like the unifying theme of these, I don't think that's really present here. Unless you want to like really stretch it where it's like the ritual of like going out and cruising and, you know, occasionally getting beaten for the transgression. But I mean, that's a little bit of a stretch. A book that's like gay counterculture and witchcraft like or the like link between like witchcraft of days of yore and gay counterculture so like i guess being gay is the same as doing magic sure you can make that philosophical argument but there's no like ornamentation here where no. you're like dressing up in like your ritual garbs to like no there's yeah. none of that sort of theatric where i would say the next movie on the list from 1949 Puss moment Am I pronouncing puce correctly? Honestly, I'm not sure. I, I I think I would pronounce it puce. Puce. And that's a color, right? It's like a dull purple. I would say it is a ugly, dusty mauve color. It's like a very old lady-ish color. I don't think me and Kenneth Anger agree on what the color puce is, though. Like, for me, it's one of those, like, shades of purpley pink that you mistake for skin. Like, it's like a brownish pink, you know? It's like an antique, kind of like faded, like die at home kind of color. Is that fair to say? It's just nasty looking. I hate <laughs> puce. It's an ugly color. In some of his like interviews, he described puce as being like a modern, sexy color. And it's like, we are not talking about the same color. It's not possible. It, it is funny that the way you're pronouncing it, uh, it sounds like puke a little bit. But <laughs> in this movie, this is like all ritual, right? Like mm-hmm. this is a woman trying on a dress and then leaving her house all it is if you were just putting on an outfit and leaving that's like a 10 minute activity but this stretches it out where like the dresses dance for the camera and that's the first thing you see is this like line of sort of sacheting linens uh these old hollywood gowns yeah beautifully beaded 1920s flapper style gowns that were his grandmother's that she gave him so it was like the kind of outfit that like Clara Bow would wear in, in a movie, you know? Yes. And it might have, some of those might have been, right. according to his own like myth making. And I think we see that now uh, with like Mardi Gras balls. I think it's like that kind of like ornamented, like mm-hmm. heavy gowns. You yeah. Know? A lot of hand beating, a lot of hand sequins, all that kind of stuff. So they like are animated, almost shimmying off the hanger towards the camera. And it's this sort of like poetic illustration of her picking out an outfit. And eventually she picks the puce dress. And we see this this woman who is just very striking looking. Like she just, I don't even know how to describe her. She has like an old Hollywood glamour to her, but I could also see her hanging out at a punk show in 2020, you know? Yeah, she's got gigantic eyes and like big apple cheeks. And yeah, just these huge, ridiculous wide set, like almost like cow-like eyes with those super long eyelashes, this long spidery lashes. So. Yeah. And he messes with the camera speed so that she has that jerky old Hollywood, like silent film era quality to the way she moves Mm -hmm. like the movie looks much older than it is uh, about 20 years older than it is (laughs) because this is still 49 it's hard to place that in time because like we said kind of in the intro part he puts a modern folk song on this later like he it's so confusing when it was first released it had a vivaldi soundtrack you said i believe it's vivaldi was listed as the original score and the one he replaced it with sounds, you called this, exactly like the verses to Goodbye Ruby Tuesday. Yeah, the melody is almost identical to Ruby Tuesday on the chorus. And I would say the effect with that like sort of modern folk song and this like sort of rich imagery of just this woman putting on a dress and then sort of floating out the door. Uh, she like lays on this like chaise lounge and uh, just sort of glides out onto her 
terrace and this like kind of classic Hollywood mansion and then descends the steps. It's the whole movie. Mm-hmm. And I would say the overall effect is something that we'll see a few more times where it just feels like a, mi- a music video is how I would describe this. Pretty much. It, it spends a lot of time lingering over her possessions, this really beautiful perfume bottle collection uh, that belongs to the person whose house they were filming in. He was an old friend of Kenneth Anger's. And he also stars in inauguration of the Pleasure Dome. So you get to see this beautiful house and all the great stuff in it. You get to see all these beautiful dresses. You get to see her fiddling with her makeup a little bit. And then she goes out on this terrace and you get to see L.A. as it looked in 1949, which is an L.A. that I am completely unfamiliar with, which is so alien to me, where there's these verdant green hills and this beautiful like clear sky and they're just in these rolling foothills with like other houses kind of dotted nearby but like everything's still very spread out and very lush looking it almost looked like a maxwell parish painting um with like the misty hues and like the beautiful like verdant greens so it was very dreamlike and very very old hollywood yeah and the casting and just her sort of demeanor sort of makes it feel like a playground for these like these lushes these like mm-hmm. hedonistic people who are just like in this like you said like sort of visually gorgeous area just sort of by themselves being weirdos and like the way she luxuriates in like preparing herself to go out for the day and makes it this whole purposeful ritual that feels like a bygone era just in itself yeah no it felt very like francesca leah block like wheezy bat to me like all the stuff that like she idolizes in her books it felt very like similar to that the sad thing for me though is that this was just one moment in what was going to be a larger film which is a theme we will touch on a lot throughout these where he was going to have a film called puce women where it was women all of them young, all of them fashionable, all of them part of this beautiful, like, puce dream he has in his head. This idea of the color and its fashionability, getting ready and doing their day and what l- the lives of glamorous women look like. So very much like the film The Women. <laughs> yeah, <for sure. laughs> There might even be a fashion show in the middle of it. And, you know, it's such an ode to old Hollywood. It's such an ode to, like, the classics. And he didn't really get a chance to do that. Yeah, maybe more so than any of these movies, this feels like the writer of Hollywood Babylon uh, mm-hmm. seeing that on the screen. But I do think it fits in like the ritual theme too. Um, yeah, very much so because it's personal ritual. And it, it does suck that he didn't fully seize the opportunity to sort of flesh it out beyond these like, I think it's like 10 minutes. I, I usually write the time down, but I didn't for this one. But I'm going to guess that it was less than 15 minutes. Yeah. Well, he didn't get to flesh this one out, but the notoriety that he gained from fireworks playing in France got him the attention of Cocteau, who was on the judging panel for a festival where fireworks played. And he got invited over to France to, to make a few movies and get sort of like bandied about by Cocteau. And he was like introduced to Jean Genet and other like poetic weirdos from the queer scene out there. And he made a couple very like stately traditional movies, I would say while he was out there. Uh, the first one being Rabbit's Moon from 1950. The version that's included on here at this time is like a original restored version that was kind of out of circulation for a while. And it's got this beautiful classic patina to it where it, it looks, again, like an older movie than it actually is. Like it, it's filmed to look like it's uh, from that like Georges Milieu era. Like it looks like one of the earliest films ever made. And he's deliberately using this like pantomime French art style where this mime 
is drawn to the beauty of the moon and keeps trying to pull the moon closer to himself, which is another milieu staple that like journey to the moon being like one of the most important early films. I'm saying his name wrong. It's Malay, right? George Méliès. <laughs> so it's like both classic cinema, like which was born in France as well. And it's like French pantomime, which was also a big deal recently there um, with Children of Paradise, which we talked about in a recent episode. Mm-hmm. You know, this mime is in love with the moon. He also briefly is distracted by this beautiful woman and then very much distracted by this like devious like devil character that intrudes on his like little garden space where he's like, poetically yearning for all these different things. If you want to talk about uh, like fireworks being like one of the least like representative of his films, this feels like a weird outlier to me as well. I'd say his French films feel very much like an outlier. This and the one we'll talk about after. This one is on a very theatrical set. Most of his films are just filmed in houses, people's houses. And even though, you know, there's obviously a set built within the house or there's a certain staged atmosphere to where he usually films. This is an actual set with a scaffolding above it, with lights. This will be broken down after his thing, and a new thing will be built. Um, It's set outdoors, which is also kind of unusual. Again, fake outdoors, though, because there's paper trees with paper leaves and a moon made out of (laughs) cardboard. So it has a very distinct artificial sheen to it that his films don't always necessarily have. Yeah, it's sort of like filmed more like a traditional narrative movie. Or even a stage play, more so. Which is very Children of Paradise. Mm -hmm. There is like a couple things I would say sort of connected with everything else. The sort of repetition of this uh, mime reaching for the moon and almost like trying to pull it to earth and like pull it closer to him Mm -hmm. feels like this like magical like incantation. And then also in this movie, we get to see an actual magic lantern which yeah. might be like where he got the name for the series from, uh, where the mime just sort of like plays with one of those projectors we were talking about oh, earlier. Oh, but he doesn't just get to play with it. So the devil is trying to get him to stop obsessing over the moon. I assume because if he stops obsessing over the moon, he has no reason to be alive, and then the devil has him forever. And so the devil shows up and tries to come up with different distractions to get him to stop worshipping the moon. And one of those distractions is a magic lantern. And when the devil reveals it, it then, like, as our mime looks to see what the magic lantern is going to project, he sees the beautiful woman for the first time. The second of the devil's distractions, which I think is kind of neat that the magic lantern did not project anything. It created something. Which is a real magic. Yeah, which was real magic. Like, it created an actual woman or an illusion of a woman, a mirage. Do you have any idea of what he's trying to say with this? Nope. Yeah, me neither. No, no um, there's a rabbit in the moon. I know that, um, which is Japanese folklore. And yeah, no. I mean, if I really want my brain to work overtime, I could come up with something about how like there's like a real world magic that we're like yearning for. And then like, there's these distractions from it that pull us back down to reality. But who knows, honestly? Yeah. Um, I kind of felt the same way with this next piece as well uh, from 1953. It's called Ode to Artifice. There's a actor in a extravagant gown, kind of looking like Marie Antoinette. And they're running around in this really ornate garden where there's just beautiful fountains just shooting water in like every which direction. And that's it for minutes on end. It's just this beautiful series of like fountains shooting jets of water. Some of it looks a little ejaculatory. Uh, but mostly it just looks like streams of water. Like I really didn't really understand 
the point of this one. I did see one quote uh, after the fact on Wikipedia that sort of explains what he was going for. Uh, but I kind of want to hear if there's anything that stuck out to you more because I'm, I'm being a little dismissive of this one. I thought that the water looked very glittering like diamonds when in fact it's, you know, not really anything special. I thought that the place where he filmed it was very beautiful and I thought the actor or actress looked really great in the outfit. Um, I wouldn't say they ran around. Um, that gives kind of the wrong tone. I would say they more like glided serenely through these beautiful, beautiful gardens. One of the really elaborate, formal, royal style of gardens where there's all these different little grottos and different types of gardens and each with their own types of fountains and waterworks. It was an exquisite little, you know, jewel, but it wasn't, you're right, anything. There was no narrative content to it. There was not really anything. It was just you following this person as they're, you know, kind of gliding around and occasionally like sneaking almost they just sort of like enter from one side of the frame and go out the other and like the movie doesn't progress i guess like the first like minute or so you see the imagery and then it doesn't really change in any kind of way it just sort of feels like a aimless tour of this beautiful space the only detail i saw that like gave this any sort of like meaning or context was that the title was like a pun on faux de artifice which is like a phrase in french that means fireworks So this is sort of like a counterpoint to fireworks in a very abstracted way where like fireworks is about this like restrained sexuality, sexuality under severe societal limitations and like the violence that comes from that. And then this is supposed to be this gushing like freedom and pleasure that he was experiencing in France for the first time. I did not get that at all when watching this. This that, that went way over my head if that's even in the film at all. That's fascinating because I read something completely different about it. Oh, go on. So I read this is again, as it seems to be the case for all of his films, pretty much. Uh, this is a fragment of what was supposed to be a larger project <laughs> that was a kind of in the same Hollywood Bab- Babylon satirical or not satirical, salacious uh, gossip. He was making a film about a French cardinal of some kind who is particularly homophobic and like played a big part in the witch trials who... Rumor has it was really into water sports. That means piss play. He liked pee. And so the fountains were like an allusion to like him liking being peed on by women. And honestly, I got, I get more of that than I got out of the other things. So that I believe that more just because there's something playful about the fountains like spurting this liquid. It does look like pee sometimes. Sometimes it looks like semen being ejaculated. Sometimes, like you said earlier, it's just beautiful. Like, he slows it down so you can see the individual beads of water. But yeah, like I said, the first minute is no different than the last minute. Like, you get the idea very quickly, and then it just kind of drones on a little bit. He could have... It's 13 minutes long, and it could have easily been four. And it wouldn't have changed really anything in this case. But, you know, it kind of makes sense as a fragment. Had these bits been interspersed throughout a larger film that had some kind of a narrative arc to it, then maybe it would have been something, but... Well, maybe the two movies he made during this like French period weren't very exemplary of his work, just in general. But I'd say the next film on the DVD really feels like the core of what we think of when we think of like Kenneth Anger's like magic films. And if the cycle started here with this next film and just the Magic Lantern was the rest of the movies we're about to talk about, I feel like it would feel more like a complete set without any, any outliers even. Uh, The next film is Inauguration of the Pleasure Dome from 1954. 
It's over half an hour long. It's it's almost a feature length. It's like almost 40 minutes. It's 38, so it's two minutes short in an Academy-length film. <laughs> it's almost there. <laughs> the title, um, Inauguration of the Pleasure Dome, is a reference to Kubla Khan, the Samuel Coleridge poem, uh, which is this, like, fantastic uh, vision, possibly opium-aided, of um, <laughs> this, like, fantasy space. The movie feels like core Kenneth Anger in that it's someone in a uh, sort of like mansion. He's putting on these like rings and like ritual robes. And then as he uh, puts on these like costuming gowns and like focuses on magic, then the movie just sort of opens to like magic rituals throughout time. There's like, like some Egyptian Pharaoh imagery. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of other periods that are referenced in there as well. There's a lot of Grecian stuff uh, with the Olympians and the gods of, you know, the Roman and Greek mythology. There's some stuff that looks kind of traditionally druidic. Some stuff that looks like fairies. There's some Day of the Dead stuff. Yeah. And then as all those different like versions of magic throughout time start layering on top of each other, the imagery starts to become layered as well. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of overlapping images. Some of it is Puce moment um, overlaid on top of these like cult rituals that he's like staging. Some of it's from this early film. It looks like Hexan, but it's this like Italian silent film. Oh, really? So it wasn't Hexan? No, it's uh, Inferno, which I've never seen, but I've seen this image before where it's like these naked bodies like falling into the pit of hell. And yeah, the movie just gets louder and louder and more layered and just like chaotic. And then it just sort of ends abruptly. But it really does feel like this is him getting into his like pure Aleister Crowley influence of just like making these like magic ritual films. And I was really impressed by it, just on a visual level. Yeah, no, I thought visually it was a really cool film. It definitely was kind of this whirlwind tour of magic throughout the ages and ritual throughout the ages. You saw hints of the sacrificial king god from, you know, obviously Christianity and other earlier religions that's outlined in the book The Golden Bough, which was a book that Kenneth Anger was very obsessed with. And you got to see a lot of really great costumes. He did recycle footage from some of his earlier projects, including Puce Moment. It's not great as far as narrative and pacing goes, because it does build to this big moment. And then it really, truly just like cuts off in a harsh, harsh way that isn't very satisfying. It would kind of be nice to see the person we start with at the beginning of the film who starts off in, you know, in the mansion, the same mansion where they film Puce Moment. Um, that was his mansion. That was the same act, the same person who owned the mansion. Uh, if we end up back with him, like, lounging in his bed with his opium pipe, and, oh, maybe it was all a dream. Just something to kind of finish framing it, because they have an opening framing device, but then there's no closing framing device, which is just a little And that's partly what's so satisfying about Fireworks, is that movie does come out of, like, the layered dream imagery and sort of comes full circle in a weird way where it's still loopy, but like there's like a satisfying narrative arc to it. And yeah, this one's just very abrupt. Yeah, it almost seems like he just ran out of footage or, you know, like ran out of film and no one would let him shoot anything else, which might have happened. We did notice uh, some objects from Puce Moment in this as well, right? Yeah, because again, the person who who starts out as our main character, that is his house. Those are his objects. So the objects, the perfume bottles from Puce Moment... The rings and the jewelry from Puce Moment, that was all his jewelry. So a lot of that stuff did get reused, either through recycled footage from Puce Moment or because they were just using the same set with the same objects. Maybe, yeah, it's not completely satisfying on a narrative level, but this area of 
imagery, like these like old Hollywood environments with like the space that eventually becomes this like platform for these rituals. And then the actual rituals themselves, this like very artificial stylized, almost like Mardi Gras stuff. There's like a little bit of drag queen imagery in there as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, there's definitely queer imagery and drag and all this beautiful overdone makeup. That really spoke to me in a way that maybe some of the later like LSD stuff that's like a little harsher and a little more, I want to say like edgelordy. When it gets maybe into the Anton LaVey one, there's definitely one that seems like very like trying to push your buttons. I just responded more to this like glam version of like cult imagery. Yeah, no, this is definitely one of his most beautiful films. The color saturation and the tinting, you know, again, the costumes, the lavish sets. Or at least the lavish costumes and the not-so-lavish sets. All of it's just really visually arresting. There's a really famous scene of a woman with a birdcage, like, on her head. that is pulled up in a lot of just, like, kind of avant-garde film imagery. So you don't like a lot of film covers of compilations and stuff. And that is pulled from this. It is, I think, one of his most beautiful films. Just in the lyricism of the way the images move across the screen. Yeah, and maybe it's something that would benefit more from being, you know, projected on the wall at a party than, like, staring at it for 40 minutes straight. But some, like, early experimental film showings were more like a party atmosphere where people kind of talked over them and, like, milled about. And it's a little different when you're just watching it and staring straight at it. Also, part of it, I think, too, is, like, he has, like, another opera-style score over this one. And I don't feel like I'm properly trained to listen to that at length. Where, like, some of his other movies, starting with the next one, actually, have more of a 60s rock and roll and R&B soundtrack. Uh, and I find it a lot easier to focus on, like, the pop music ones. I don't know, because the first version of Rabbit Moon that we already talked about uses a 1950s doo-wop soundtrack, and it's really out of place and ugly for that one. And that was added much later. Yes. Yeah. The next film, actually, uh, from 1964, it's like a whole decade later after Pleasure Dome, Uh, It's called um, Scorpio Rising. Uh, It's one of his more iconic ones, for sure. And that is cited as the first drama film to feature a rock and roll soundtrack. So that whole, like, Scorsese, like, needle dropping of, like, Motown hits and stuff that, like, we really respond to as, like, a cinematic trope now, apparently was, like, started in in Scorpio Rising, which I find... Very odd. I I, I want to know like what other films were around that time. Yeah, because like it would have felt like films like The Wild Ones or something, which is referenced visually in Scorpio Rising, would have thought that would have had like. Yeah, but I don't know if it's like an assemblage of like radio songs the way this one is. Mm. You know, like this has like genuine needle drops, and these are like big songs. It's like My Boyfriend's Back, The Leader of the Pack is in there. Yeah, really expensive stuff, honestly. Yeah, <laughs> like stuff I'm kind of shocked that he had the money for. And the movie itself is kind of like a 60s pop collage in a way, or maybe even like a 50s throwback collage. Yeah, a little bit 50s because it's very, very um, heavy into the motorcycle culture and the motorcycle clubs, but not in the easy rider sort of way, more in the wild one sort of way. Very, very heavy James Dean imagery, uh, including in one of the characters' rooms, like a James Dean fan club poster. This film just kind of like briefly glimpses into the lives of different members of a motorcycle club. And even films the wild one just off a television. Yeah. Which... How did he do that? Because you didn't necessarily know when films... I mean, they had TV guides and stuff, but he would just have to wait for that to show up on TV and then film it. Like, it could have been years till the next time, like, a television channel showed that film. What I heard was that he was really into, like, the magic of, like, happenstance around this time. So, like, that bedroom that has the old 50s comic books and, like, James Dean cutouts on the wall, that actually just was that guy's bedroom. He was just filming this man in his own space. And he has, like, the same kind of ring bowl 
mm-hmm. you know, bowl of like jewelry that he puts on before he goes out cycling that like the cult leader in inauguration of the pleasure dome has as well. Like they like sort of adorn themselves before they're like rituals in the same way. Uh, another happenstance miracle besides like happening to catch the wild ones on TV uh, to film this like Marlon Brando biker movie that kind of defined the regalia of the you know subculture uh, was that a box of film that was supposed to be delivered to a children's school a few blocks away ended up on his doorstep. And it was Christian footage of uh, Jesus riding into Nazareth on a donkey. That's where that came from. Ugly Jesus. Yeah, this is not a sexy Jesus. Oh, no, he's not sexy Jesus. He's <laughs> very dowdy Jesus. Uh, dowdy Jesus. So Kenneth Anger gets this box of just like random religious footage that was supposed to be delivered to the school. And he's like, oh, this was meant to be. And he integrated it into the picture. And honestly, it really elevates what's happening here. Oh, 100%. Because it's talking about that obsession with tragedy that like teenagers have um so you know he's playing songs like leader of the back and my boyfriend's back and like songs about like losing your hot boyfriend in a tragic motorcycle accident you see all these young men with their motorcycles and they're getting into fights and tragic motorcycle accidents and then there's jesus it's like oh here he comes walking down the street he's a rebel (laughs) yeah he's a rebel is played over the soundtrack too yeah and there's like a joke too about like how Jesus just rolled like 12 guys deep everywhere he went and the motorcycle gang, you know, we see them individually in their bedroom and like shining their bikes and getting ready for the ritual. The ritual itself is like all these like meathead boys roughhousing and it gets more and more sexual the more they're like playing with each other's bodies and that's intercut with, you know, Jesus and the apostles like walking around Nazareth. Yeah. And like drinking wine and like having like little Jesus parties. So, yeah, no, like, that was really brilliant, intercutting it. Because, yeah, it's a session with, like, dying young and, like, the idolization of the one who does die young, like our James Deans. And, you know, I thought that worked really well for this. Yeah, it does. Uh, and there's, like, a eroticism of, like, classic masculinity in there as well, which kind of calls back to the fireworks imagery of just, like, waist-level shots of men buckling and unbuckling their belts. whole lot of that. Muscly dudes putting on leather jackets with no undershirts, which is leather on skin, which is very, like, dirty. There's a certain, like, fetishism of, like, baby fat. Like, these, like, really muscly guys who are still quite young, so they have, like, you know, like, abs and pecs, but there's, like, this layer of, like, sweet, luscious baby fat on them. It's like, oh, the bloom of youth. (laughs) Oh. And they're not hiding the gay... Oh, no. Material in this either. Like, rubbing each other's dicks on each other's faces and, like, pinning each other down. And There's some light teabagging. There's, like... Boy stuff. Boy stuff. <laughs> one of one boy's getting flustered because everybody keeps teasing him. <laughs> he's getting, like, more and more like, hey, stop it, you guys. But then, like, he's turning red and they're turning red. And I don't yeah. know. I think they're all into it. Unfortunately, uh, some of that, like, juvenile masculinity also includes some... Uh, Provocative button pushing in the form here of Nazi regalia. I mean, that is biker subculture. For sure. They fucking love Nazi shit. And like, I don't think Kenneth Anger was pro-Nazi by any, like, or is pro-Nazi by any, like, stretch of the imagination. Pretty sure Nazis would not have liked Kenneth Anger. But yeah, he just loves boy stuff. And part of boy stuff is Nazi shit. Yeah. Because you're not supposed to like it. And they got good uniforms. And also, they idolize stuff. Nazis idolize stuff. Boys idolize stuff. He does kind of make it a little subversive, too. Like, there's one edgelord waving this, like, swastika flag from the pulpit of a church. And then that's intercut with some of Jesus speaking a little bit, too. So 
He's really just trying to offend people, I think. Yeah, well, and also, you know, like, people fall under the spell of, like, a charismatic leader. He's also saying, hey, Jesus was a little like that, too. He started a violent cult, too. It's not that different. He's definitely, like, criticizing Christianity and criticizing Nazis. But he's also fetishizing Jesus himself and fetishizing the Nazis a little bit. Yeah, unfortunately, some of that Nazi imagery is inextricable from S&M iconography. Just yeah, no, like, it's, it's impossible to separate. Like, you can't have Tom of Finland without scary male authority figures. <laughs> in leather. <laughs> in leather. Yeah. It's, like, it's not like uh, Tom of Finland, like Toko, I don't remember how to pronounce his last name, Laskonen. He hated Nazis. He fought against them. He's like, yeah, they're fucking assholes. They're always trying to get me. But... Man, those uniforms. Like, And part of it is the taboo of, yeah. of that as well. Like, you know it's wrong. Yeah. And yeah, the movie obviously knows that shit is wrong and you feel that. But it's like <laughs> deliberately provoking you and having fun doing it. Yeah. Um, this is one of the strongest ones for sure. Like oh, very definitely. high up for yeah, me. Yeah, I liked Scorpio Rising a lot. I would say that's in my top three from this. And his film from the next year, Custom Car Commandos, a little more trolling in that name because it's spelled... All with a K, so Custom Car Commandos KKK. Ugh. Uh, <laughs> besides that title joke, this is sort of the same imagery from Scorpio Rising, but without all of the trolling and just like more about the beauty of the biker culture. Well, and this is just cars. Oh, that's right. It's, it's hot it's, rods. It's all hot rods. It's beautiful, pristine 1950s hot rods. Like, gorgeous. Like, uh, one of the cars had mirrors for its floorboards so that you could see all the perfect parts of the car. Like, it's like the true should not be driven outdoors, should be in a car museum cars. Weren't, like, the ceilings and, like, walls of the car, everything was mirror, right? Yeah, that one was all mirror on the interior, other than the seats. Yeah. And not the dashboard, because that would blind you. But, like, all, like, the vertical surfaces of the car were mirror, and then the floorboards were all mirror. It was bizarre. And then the big muscly man has to climb inside his delicate, beautiful car with a pair of socks on. He can't, like... Oh, you can't wear shoes on a shoes mirror? Shoes in there, yeah. Yeah, no, you'd break the mirror. <laughs> Whew. But I guess what I was connecting it to um, Scorpio Rising is just there's a lot of like taking apart of the engine Mm -hmm. and just sort of ogling the curves and like grills. Kind of like a Russ Meyer movie, just like sexualizing the shape of a vehicle. Yeah, 100%. And that's in both of those movies. And like Scorpio Rising, the stuff where they're actually shooting the vehicles, they're doing this indoors. They're doing it with really excellent lighting. And they're doing it on really beautiful, crisp film stock. These shots are just so nice looking considering how grainy his earlier films could be and how kind of unfocused and like you know like fuzzy things sometimes came out for him uh these are just incredibly sharp um not all of uh scorpio rising is sharp like that because he also uses like b footage of like boys on bikes guessing with the particular group of boys he was shooting those boys aren't like going out necessarily to the motorcycle rallies because they'll get beat up. So he just like took regular stock footage of like motorcycle rallies with like a hundred people at them, uh, and then intercut that. Yeah, it's more of like a multimedia movie, right? There's like in, in Scorpio Rising, there's like stage tableaus, and there's some like documentary style footage, mm-hmm. and then there's like archival footage, mm-hmm. uh, and it's all just sort of like mixed together in a jumble, harshly sometimes, but funnily. Whereas, yeah, for this one, Custom Car Commandos, it is. Beautiful and pristine for all three minutes of it. Well, this was also supposed to be a feature. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, he got $10,000 from the Ford Foundation, 
which started off as like the Ford Motor Company subsidiary. And they sort of broke away from Ford Motors around this time to fund the arts. So this is in that gray area where they're still, because it's still car related. And it still feels like a Ford kind of like adjacent film. But it's, you know, this pristine art object with this like homoeroticism and this sort of like abstracted beauty that has nothing to do with like car culture, uh, even though you're looking at beautiful cars. And this is all he got out of that foundation payment it was three minutes. Uh, I believe only the song Dream Lover plays over it. Maybe there's one other rock tune. No, I only wrote Dream Lover. And that's a great song. And it sort of beautifully fits the like slow gliding camera angles over the cars, like every feature and uh, a little bit of the muscles of the men who are like putting it together. And if I recall, it was a woman singing Dream Lover too, which was unusual because usually I think of that song as being sung by a male singer. She's got kind of a soft, like, baby voice, almost like a Marilyn Monroe kind of pillowy uh, voice, too, which there's a gruff masculinity versus, like, delicate, beautiful things vibe in this film. Yeah, a lot of, like, polishing the car with, like, a big fluffy chamois, the biggest, fluffiest chamois you've ever seen. Uh, One more Russ Meyer detail it reminded me of, and he would have been making movies around the same time. There's these earlier films he made, these, like, his nudie cutie era where he was filming a lot of like topless stuff in public, which you really couldn't get away with um, legally. So what he would do is he would shoot these inserts where these women were in these pink pastel voids. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they would be like, shake their titties for the camera in this like beautiful fake artificial like photography environment. And this one has that same kind of setup where the background is just this like pink void that goes nowhere, you know? Yeah. Uh, and it, it just looks really cool and artificial in like a cotton candy kind of way. So it's like Russ Meyer, except it's incredibly gay, which, you know, I mean, is a compliment. Yes. Because <laughs> I love them both. And then the next film, I think we have a much edgier, more grotesque version of what he started with Inauguration of the Pleasure Dome. This one is called Invocation of My Demon Brother. It is the one that heavily features Anton LaVey doing his Church of Satan rituals. It also features a bunch of hippies staging this um, ritualistic funeral for a pet cat in which they burn a cat's body alive on the camera which was a little rough to watch they burn it live on the camera the cat itself is not alive sorry yeah the cat is already dead the cat's dead i don't know why i said live they burn a dead cat on the camera which was rough the one thing i can say about it positive is that it's a very scary film it's very upsetting there's this repetitious almost screwdriver sounding score provided by mick jagger using a moog synthesizer for the very first time in his life and he didn't really know what he was doing just yeah he was just experimenting and so he ended up with this really terrifying sounding drone effect where it's just kind of these sharp stabs of sound like stabbing at you but then also very droney um so it kind of like drone and lull along and then stab 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 and then like stab 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 um which was a very off-putting effect that he managed to put together which was a very like quick replacement score that he had to get last second because his original score was done by one of the Manson family members who, prior to his run-ins with the Manson family, but they got in a fight essentially, and so he didn't finish doing the soundtrack. And so Mick Jagger just had to step in because at this point he started becoming like a member of like I don't know a certain like countercultural subset yeah and this is like when hippie stuff just got really ugly this is like the year of the the sharon tate murders this is the year it's 69 it's when all the fun times ended this is after altmont so things go poorly for mick jagger as well this year 
And then I believe the man who absconded with the scraps of footage and the original score went to trial for murder for a different Manson-related crime that wasn't the Sharon Tate murder. Yeah, he killed a friend of his prior to the Sharon Tate murders, the Tate Bianca murders. And so he was not involved with that as a result. So, like, he got off, you know, like, much lighter because he just murdered one guy over money. So he then couldn't be involved in the other murders and then go to jail for life. So, I mean, it's probably for the best for him. And then Anger himself seemed like he was going through a dark time, too. Like, he was doing a lot of drugs. And I, I think there's, like, his Icarus moment. He's, like, flying too close to the sun where he's, like, trying to, like, create this real-world magic through this, like, hedonism. And it's just really dysfunctional and ugly and honestly terrifying. Like, this movie's scary in an unpleasant way. I don't know if it's necessarily good either. No, there's some interesting imagery, but also he's just good at picking out things that look cool. There's an albino man. One of the issues people who uh, are albino have is, you know, they have a visual impairment. And so there's like a flickering of the eye. So he's like kind of like zooming in and showing like this person's eyes fluttering like a moth. And that looks really cool because you don't really know what that is if you aren't familiar with people who are uh, visually impaired or blind but like that's not like really like a brilliant directorial choice he made he just found someone who looked cool Uh, and then he intercut that with footage of some rituals and intercut that with footage of a band playing and intercut that with footage of a funeral for a dead cat so eh. i left this one with like a really greasy taste in my mouth Even this one was not what it was supposed to be. This was the trial run, the early stirrings of his uh, most famous film, uh, Lucifer Rising. His, like, first trial run attempt at it, and it kind of, like, fell apart. And he, like, remade the scraps into this movie. And you can just sort of feel the dysfunction and, like, the ugly vibes in the air. And Yeah, this is the point where, like, the people who, like, knew him from early on are like, you've changed, man, and, like, are abandoning him, like... The person who was supposed to do the soundtrack. His last name is Beausoleil. I cannot remember. Maybe it's Bobby Beausoleil. The one who was involved with the Manson family. But like they had lived together for like two years. And had kind of gotten along in a weird way. And then they got in a fight over money. And like investors were calling for Kenneth Anger to finish a movie. And he goes, no, no. Bobby stole all the footage. So it's not me, man. It's Bobby. He stole the footage. And Bobby's like, what the fuck? Why would I steal your footage? I wanted money from you. If I steal your footage, you can't then make money. How is that a good idea on my part? And then Bobby's version of the story is that Kenneth Anger was just partying and doing drugs a bunch and not cognizant enough to create, you know, yeah, a complete art you object. You forgot to make a movie because you yeah. did too much acid. Don't blame me, man. Excuse me, I gotta go murder someone and go to jail now. So, yeah, it's just like a real nasty place. Like, he's taken up residence in, like, like every, like, great art period in the United States, uh, I feel like hinges on really shitty economic like downturns where like you can buy an entire mansion for like 12 bucks at an auction and so like he's like living in a mansion in san francisco and it's falling down around his head because he can't take care of it because he doesn't know how to take care of a mansion so he's like living in this like you know rotten splendor and he's like everything's fine i live in a mansion so i've made it i don't have to do anything else i'm friends with Mick jagger now like People are just going to invite me to their parties and give me money to make movies. I don't actually have to make movies now. It's like, that's not that's not quite how it works. Yeah, he had had, like, cool cred for, like, decades at that point. So he was just, like, an interesting figure in people's lives. Famous for being famous um, after a certain point. Yeah. Which, you know, if he had made a few more, like, feature films, um, it would be a lot harder to be more dismissive of that. 
but because he has all these like projects that like could have been more and could have been bigger and like more put together it's hard not to be a little frustrated with him yeah that's the thing like i don't want people to think like i don't like kenneth anger or something because i do i really like some of his films it's just i'm also so frustrated with him after watching invocation of my demon brother it's like why did you make this (laughs) i can tell that this is just scraps from a bunch of things and it's not really anything and you didn't write anything for it there's no real ideas behind it it's just a bunch of images and the spirit of it is so ugly i also hate anton LaVey. yeah an asshole so, you know, there's that. And you want to talk about that um, birdcage image from Pleasure Dome being, like, so iconic. Most images I've seen of LaVey, like, online, just, like, Googling him for other projects, have come from this movie. Like, this is, like, a document of his ugly scene that he created. Yeah, this was around, I think, maybe shortly after LaVey's, like, most, like, famous event where he did, like, the satanic baptism of his daughter, and so, yeah, like, he's riding high at this point, being his shitty, misogynistic self. <laughs> yeah. This stupid fucking facial hair uh, that drives me nuts. But I just, yeah, no, I really don't like Anton LaVey, and I don't like a lot of the imagery in this. Obviously, a dead cat's not most people's cup of tea. A dead cat on fire, I should add. Yeah, like, I mean, <laughs> even if they didn't kill the cat for ritualistic purposes, which I appreciate, you know, if they didn't do that, it's still, like, not cool. And then, yeah, the rest of his career, there's two more films on this are kind of like incomplete projects as well. 1979. Ten years later. The next thing that shows up, yeah, it's another version of Rabbit's Moon that (laughs) is such a troll. It's like sped up, edited down, and then the rock and roll like 60s soundtrack is replaced with this like proggy spooky rock song it's like bad warren zevon yeah that's right things that go bump in the night tend to give me a terrible fright a little bit of like elo in there because he like carries the like notes in the chorus on for a really long time i'm giving the night i'm the night i'm the night i fucking hate that song the fact that this is now a seven minute version of rabbit's moon and he sped it up to double time and cut out half the scenes He tightened it up a little bit. I think the original Rabbit's Moon could have been edited down a little to make it a little more coherent. But at the same time, he does not play that song once. He plays that song in its entirety twice. Like he didn't have any other money for any other music and didn't want to put in score. So he's like, oh, I'll just double the song. Nobody will notice. But it's a very distinctive song. So of course we notice. Yeah, it's an earworm only because it's pounded into your head a second time. <laughs> it's very repetitive and then it literally repeats. I didn't even mind the song the first time I heard it. I was like, yeah, I don't really like that he used this song. But okay, I get it. Like things that go bump in the night. Oh, it's at night and the devil's here and there's a moon. Okay. Yeah. But then when he played it a second fucking time, I just, I couldn't. I was actually less offended by the song choice than I was by the fact that he replaced those beautiful Melies versions of the moon with like kind of just ugly, ugly shots of the stock actual moon. Footage. Yeah, yeah, it was like bad stock footage. It kind of just zaps the magic out of the movie in a very clear way. Part of the charm of Rabbit's Moon is that it is on a closed set with pantomime painted sets, very much like a pantomime puppet show. Uh, everything's hand painted, everything's handmade. And then to replace like part of the hand painted, handmade sets with just stock footage it's like no we like handmade stuff we like practical effects and we like puppetry and animation so i don't see why you would just replace it with just like something so blah 
And like, it's not even like the zoomed in moon. It's like kind of a small moon in the sky. And you'd want it to be larger than life if it's a fantasy. I don't want kitchen sink realism just kind of shoehorned into the middle of a fantasy piece. Maybe he's trying to do this like mix of like orchestrated magic versus like real world objects, but it, it really just zaps the magic out. Like it, it, it just brings that one part down without elevating the other part up, you know? Mm-hmm. It's just kind of a disappointment. Just watch the other version of Rabbit's Moon, the one from 1950. That one's beautiful. It will test your patience a little bit, but it's definitely better than this. It's a total cop. And the fact that it took him a fucking decade to put this out, unacceptable. Well, we have one last movie, and it's the one he worked on the longest, which is probably why there's such a gap between uh, Invocation of My Demon Brother and this one. Uh, From 1981, Lucifer Rising. It's a movie that... I see advertised to me all the time on Facebook because Kenneth Anger is still alive and selling the jacket from this movie as a memorabilia item. And I totally want it, but he charges usually like $666 or $555 for the jacket. And that's also like what I make in like a paycheck. Yeah. Like it's almost a whole paycheck for me because I don't make very much money. So I can't buy that jacket in good conscience when I have things like a mortgage to pay. Can you describe the jacket a little bit? Oh, God. So there's different versions. Sometimes it's a leather jacket. Sometimes it's a gold lame track jacket. Sometimes it's a sequin jacket. It does not matter really what kind of jacket it is. The main thing is that on the back of this jacket, there is a very large applique that takes the entire back of the jacket that spells out the name Lucifer. And then each letter has a trail like a colored trail that comes down to like a diamond like point in the colors of the rainbow so it's like a rainbow beam diamond that like spells out the name lucifer yeah it's like a gay satan leather jacket it's the most beautiful yeah and that connects the movie to scorpio rising too we didn't mention that one has a studded leather jacket that says scorpio rising it's the title credits for scorpio rising i guess i should have mentioned that because that is one of my favorite parts that For the title credits, he just custom-studded a leather jacket with his title card, which is great. This movie, it definitely feels like a part of that film. Like, it feels like he's trying to achieve a similar thing where it's like this, like, tapestry sort of connecting all these different occultist rituals together, really digging deep into Aleister Crowley's influence specifically. And it feels more like a real movie, though, than any other thing on here. 100%. It takes some of the best parts of Scorpio Rising and some of the best parts of Inauguration of the Pleasure Dome and puts them in one movie. However, I don't think it is quite as strong as either of those other two movies on their own. Just because this film, he had money this time. He had real money um, from, I think, John Paul Getty Jr., the father of the kid who got kidnapped. He was really big in the art scene and he's a huge Anglophile. And so he met Kenneth Anger in England and was like, oh, I love your whole thing. I'll give you money. And so Kenneth Anger for the first time truly has like unlimited funds. So he could go to Egypt and actually film stuff in front of the pyramids. At first I thought like maybe he did some trickery. Like maybe he's combining some stock footage with some stuff that was shot just in like the California desert. And then it's like, oh no, that's unmistakably being shot in Egypt in front of the pyramids. There's no other way to do that. Or there's just like long shots of like an active volcano just like spewing lava. It's like, wow, that requires real equipment and like... Yeah, like real crane shots, real helicopter shots, yeah. like, which, I mean, maybe he used B footage for that. Maybe he cheaped out on that, which totally fair. You don't, I mean, it's a volcano. They all kind of look the same, I mean, honestly. But there's real actors and actresses in this. Marianne Faithful's in there. 
apparently Jimmy Page and uh, Robert Plant, I think, yeah. too, were both in it. They were both wearing heavy makeup, so it was kind of hard to tell who they were. And Hodorowski was on set watching some of it, which Hodorowski's like whole Holy Mountain kind of mysticism deal is like definitely directly Kenneth Anger influenced. I think we even mentioned like, oh, like Hodorowski like would have loved this. And it's like, oh, one of the scenes, there's a bunch of people in a room watching as Kenneth Anger does a ritual. And one of the people in that room is Hodorowski. Yeah. So. I think the two names we called out were him and uh, Panos Cosmatos. Yeah. Which Beyond the Black Rainbow feels definitely connected to this. But I don't think the atmosphere is as strong here as in some of those influenced works. I think people kind of built on this a little more. Yeah, because I think because he was again doing magic and ritual through the ages across cultures. He was doing that same thesis as Pleasure Dome, but instead of making it theatrical, he was trying to make it realistic. So they go to real castles in Germany and England and you get to see like some like druid shit, like running up and down castle stairs at night with torches and like that kind of imagery. And you get to see like Marianne Faithful walking through like a stone walled garden it looks very medieval and so she looks like you know like the way the song uh, as tears roll by that like scarborough fair kind of sounding it looks like she was then transported to that time in the past yeah and then like they're actually in egypt and you see like the beautiful uh topless goddess there at the pyramids like the pharaohess i guess she's actually technically also a pharaoh reigning over her kingdom and like calling for the deaths of people and i think because of that I don't know, it's almost like being in open air makes the magic dissipate because there's all these different lighting conditions. So there's no real continuity in the atmosphere of anything because the Egypt scenes feel very different from the like Druid scenes, which feel very different from the indoor ritual. And so because the lighting and the film quality and the way they're paced is so different from scene to scene, it does feel really disjointed in a way that Pleasure Gnome doesn't, the way Scorpio Rising doesn't necessarily. Yeah, they don't overlap and like interact with each other. They're just kind of like butted up against each other. Here's a little of this. Here's a little of that. And this was also supposed to be a longer film uh, with more of a clear narrative and more of a traditional movie that never came together. It does have a start and end with like a journey. Mm-hmm. Um, it ends with something you did not particularly care for, though, which was the uh, theory that um, Egyptians were influenced by space aliens. Well, because it's a fucking racist theory promoted by the Nazis. Yeah. And like white supremacists like, oh, the black people of Egypt, they're too black to have built anything. So maybe aliens did it, which I fucking hate. But also, like, people back then, like, when that book Ancient Aliens came out, like, not a lot of people knew that the person who wrote that was, like, part of, like, white supremacist groups and, like, was into that shit. Like, a lot of people just, like, read it and was like, oh, this is cool. What if? What if we're descended from aliens? And that's how life started on Earth. Like, I get that. And it's very, like, galaxy brain. But then when you find out that that guy was actually just promoting an agenda, it's like, fuck. Fuck, 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 fuck. Fuck. Not cool. I mean, it's really easy to roll your eyes at this after we've had, like, several TV shows, like, about ancient aliens. Like, an entire history network has has fallen down that rabbit hole. Whereas if you were, like, just smoking weed in the late 70s and saw this movie and, like, uh, this UFO emerges from behind the pyramid, your little mind would have been blown, you know? Yeah. Yeah, no. And that's the thing. Like, I live in a very different culture. Kenneth kind of Anger could like laugh at the KKK and laugh at Nazis and like laugh at white supremacy and be like, ah, but that doesn't affect us now. I mean, he was extremely privileged and as a white gay male in Hollywood, he was in a lot of ways really protected from getting to see a lot of that stuff. And so he was happily oblivious, just doing his little rituals and that kind of stuff, not really realizing that people are like legit trying to like undermine certain histories that we now like believe like, oh, 
black people lived in Egypt and they built the pyramids. And if you don't realize like what that line of thinking can lead to, like, oh, they're not really human or they can't ever achieve that kind of technological like level. This means they're not the same as us. This means it's okay to enslave people. Like if you don't like follow that chain of thinking, which Kenneth Anger obviously never did, like he has no reason to like be threatened by those ideas or to see those ideas as like something bad. I don't think he's particularly interested in them beyond just how cool it looks. And he doesn't have really any strong politics. It doesn't seem like his politics have to do with hedonism and have to do with magic. But like the mundane day-to-day politics of the United States have really no outcome bearing on his life. And his interest in magic is very internal. Like he Mm -hmm. wants to use these rituals and this like the power of cinema to manifest this like personal inner desires outside of himself like it's just the answer the secret the secret that's what it was yeah the secret everyone in la was obsessed with the secret the way he sees it he made these like beautiful films in pursuit of that magic what he was trying to do is become a famous god-tier filmmaker and have these like sort of feature films and be seen as one of the greats and the way he sees it he didn't quite achieve that because you can't have everything He's like, oh, I could get away with making these like movies that no one else could get away with making at the time, but I couldn't do that and achieve like the level of fame I wanted. Which I mean, true, he really couldn't. Like, yeah, you can't make queer cinema in 1960s America and become, you know, the Elia Kazan or Preston Sturges. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I mean, yeah, if I think back, like even to when I was in high school, like Harry Potter books were being banned from libraries because they were like too anti-christian quote-unquote so like for this movie to have existed you know decades before then he was deliberately like ostracizing himself from any kind of mainstream acceptance as a filmmaker you know which you know great like spit on them i'm fine with that even though he may or may not have squandered some of the opportunities he was presented with when he was younger he still is a legend like even though like we can look at him and be like oh he could have done so much more he's still a legend People still think he's cool. People like still like kind of flock to him with that same level of like idolization that he had back in the 60s. Like, I mean, I'm sure there were some dark periods where like he was just kind of living alone in a house and like people weren't writing him fan letters. I'm sure he went through that and I'm sure he went through some hard times and like periods of obscurity, but he is still a legend. He did achieve a certain notoriety. And even if these films are like individually flawed and like we kind of want a few of them to be better than they are. As a group and as a whole, just like living in this imagery for a couple weeks as we like watched one a day, it's really impressive as like a set, you know? Even though none of those films quite lived up to like an expectation we had, all of these films helped make other films. They were so heavily influential in their imagery and in their content and in their style that he may not have achieved his dreams, but other people have achieved his dreams. Okay, I'm looking at, like, the list right now. Mm-hmm. And I would say there's, like, five sort of, like, very major works here. There's Fireworks, Inauguration of the Pleasure Dome, Scorpio Rising, Invocation of My Demon Brother, and Lucifer Rising. Mm-hmm. And then in there, there's, like, two really good, I would call them music video movies, which is uh, Custom Car Commandos and Puce Moment. Mm-hmm. And, you know, other works in between. Do you have, like, clear standouts or, like, you absolutely have to see this Kenneth Anger movie? Or do you think it's, like, you have to see the whole set to get why any of them are significant? I don't think you need to see the whole set if you just are a fan. If you see, like, the first couple, 
uh, that we recommend and you really love them and you want to see all the rest, good on you, please do. But I think, you know, really, you need to watch Inauguration of the Pleasure Dome. You need to watch Scorpio Rising. I mean, I really love Custom Car Commando, even though it's like, you know, a three minute short. And I think, yeah, you need to also watch Lucifer Rising. Uh, I think if you were just going to watch three, though, Inauguration of the Pleasure Dome, Scorpio Rising, Lucifer Rising, and you'd be fine. I think that sums up the Magic Lantern cycle, those three. Those are like really good cornerstone movies of a pyramid shape uh, to like sort of establish what he was doing with that series. Personally, though, my favorite is still Fireworks, uh, and it does feel like a separate work from that corner. think I think if there's three longer movies, it'd be, yeah, Inauguration, Scorpio, and Lucifer. And then if there's three shorts, it would be Fireworks, Custom Car Commando, and Pew's Moment. I think the shorter ones maybe exist better isolated. Basically, we're just saying skip Invocation of My Demon Brother because it's gross. Yeah, and Rabbit's <laughs> Moon is just so fucking frustrating no matter what version you watch. Yeah. So Oda Artifice doesn't really mean anything. Not to me. It might have meant something to him. It's pretty. There's yeah. some really cool abstract water scenes. That's about it. But, you know, this whole general patina of like occultist rituals and like overt homoeroticism in a time where neither of those things would have been acceptable to like a mainstream moviegoer, so that had to be like packed away in these little art house spaces in like New York City and like the darker corners of Los Angeles. Like, this is really just fun stuff to sort of live in for a while. Yeah, and it's also a glimpse of like this California that no longer exists. I feel like California is very much like this like obsessed with clean living, obsessed with living like the perfect life kind of place. And like, it used to be a weirder, seedier place. Like, I mean, California is still seedy as fuck, but, you know, it's this place that was built just for oddballs. Everybody there is from out of town. Everything's kind of weird. And this old Hollywood glamour, this, like, place that doesn't exist, a place that, yeah, you only find in the pages of Hollywood Babylon and the Francesca Leah Block, like, Wheezy Bat books, like... It's that version of L.A. that just does not exist anymore. And a lot of people cite that Manson era of like when it died. Yeah, no, 100%. That is 100% when it died. And you can feel it happen here. And things aren't quite right after that, unfortunately. But there's a lot of magic, like actual magic in these movies. In the fact that just like cinema can move you and like create this like poetry. Like even if I don't quite believe the same things he does as far as like manifesting your internal desires externally. I felt some like real strong, potent stuff in these films. Yeah, no, for me, a spell is not like a thing you say or write down. It's not necessarily a set of rituals you do. It's it's a machine. Like, so to me, like a computer is a spell or like a piece of art is a spell. Um, so like it's a machine that creates a thing. And I say machine very loosely, but it's a thing that has a cause and effect. And I think his films are spells. His films are rituals. His films are spells. He does manage to capture magic on film just not necessarily always the way he thinks he does well in that that way it's a success kind of undeniably you know yeah well that was a very heady topic i'm not gonna lie it was like hard to talk about this stuff i hope that we got at least somewhat accurate description of what he was up to because it is a lot to handle spread out over a long period of time yeah and i mean i would just really love i don't know if a book that's really like a oral history of kenneth anger exists i don't know if he's ever written an autobiography but i think that would be really fucking fascinating from him like really going into it like i know yes he did do a lot of drugs but Hopefully he kept notes and took photographs and he has people around him who can assist him with like getting this stuff out because like I think his world is utterly fascinating. He's still out there giving interviews too. I, I watched yeah. one with him and Nicholas Winding Refn the other day that was like pretty sharp. Yeah, it no. must have been pretty recently. 
So he's still out there telling his stories. And I hope we haven't offended him. Like, oh. I mean, we're, we're nobody's like, <laughs> there's no chance he will ever hear this, but like, I do like hold him with a certain amount of reverence. Uh, sometimes I think he makes dumbass decisions, but like, that's just my opinion. And I can love someone and think they're great and still think that they behave like a dumbass. We just want better for you. <laughs> I'm not mad. I'm just disappointed. <laughs> Everyone knows that's worse. So next episode, we're going to kind of make it even more hard on ourselves. Brittany and I are going to talk about the Czech new wave and like uh, Czechoslovakian movies. That's going to be hard, too, because <laughs> I don't really know what I'm talking about. I love that this is a really difficult time for everyone. Obviously, we're recording this in the middle uh, of the pandemic, and most people are watching escapist fluff right now because we're all fucking sad and cooped up and anxious and sad and angry and anxious. And here we are like... What are some of the more difficult things we could delve into? Oh, here are some films about drugs and magic and sex and queerness. Let's let's delve into that. Oh, Czechoslovakia and art films yeah. of the new wave. <laughs> let's delve into that. It's not like, hey, you want to just like do like some rom-coms set in libraries? Can we just do rom-coms set in the future? Can we do cartoons? Can we do our favorite cartoon movies from when we were kids? No, that's not what we're doing. I mean, I am watching hours of Project Runway most nights. Oh, yeah. No, we are only watching television. We're only watching competition television. So this isn't what I'm doing with all my time, but this is a way to keep my mind sharp, at least, because it is hard to focus on anything right now. Um, so I do find this like kind of a mental challenge useful, uh, even if it is a little taxing. Yeah, fair. Uh, in the meantime, what I have been doing every week, because we are in lockdown right now and there are no theaters open, I've switched my weekly what's playing in theaters around town report to movies you can stream online that Swamp Flix has recommended in the past. So every Thursday I've been posting just like a list of like movies we've rated five stars just for like a random grab bag. Yeah, because we need to know what's good. Problem when I open Netflix is I just like to scroll forever because maybe I'll see a better movie if I keep scrolling. And then you've wasted an hour. Yeah, I also really love doing that though. So anytime you want to see just a random grab bag of recommendations of movies you can stream during this pandemic click on now playing at the top of the website and i'll include a uh, link to that in the notes for this episode but also uh once the theaters are back open that is usually where i put what's playing in theaters this week if you want to see what movies are you know screening around new orleans and i hope we get back to that reality sometime relatively soon because i miss it but yeah check us out on swampflex.com uh we'd love to recommend streaming movies to you because there's no other kind right now <laughs> no other kind right now <laughs> see you in a couple weeks bye everybody bye